Good morning. It is an honor for um, us to be here um, uh, with my lovely wife, Blair, and son, Sage, and we're uh, just delighted to be able to join you guys this morning. Um, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's really a privilege because we've spent a lot of time at Capitol Hill Baptist Church uh, praying uh, for this church, and so it's uh, a blessing to see what God is uh, doing here, and I'm just honored to be able to share uh, his word with you this morning. Uh, the, the theme of uh, the sermon this morning is a praying mother, a praying mother. Now, I know that Mother's Day is still a couple months away, um, but this is a theme that is uh, near and dear to my heart. I am the product of a mother who spent years on her knees praying that God would bring me uh, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, me standing here um, before you preaching God's word is a miracle of his grace. Um, it's something that I would have never anticipated. Um, and God used the prayers of my mother uh, to save me um, and to do what the things that he's doing in my life now. Uh, my wife, Blair, is the product of a praying grandmother um, who labored um, on her face before God uh, since Blair was a little girl, um, and, and now she is walking uh, with the Lord. Um, and, uh, and so I, my prayer is that this uh, passage that we look at today uh, would encourage you um, in your prayers to God um, and, um, and that you would see him as all-sufficient uh, for every, to meet every need that you have in your lives. And so I want to encourage you uh, to open up your Bibles to the book of First Samuel. First Samuel, Old Testament after the book of Ruth and before the book of Kings. And in this text, we're going to see um, a praying mother. I'm just going to read uh, the, the whole chapter, starting at verse 1 of 1 Samuel. This is God's word. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Aphrodite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. 
So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning, and they worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah flower, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Amen. Praise God for his word. 
Uh, so just to uh, give a sense of the setting of this text, uh, this is in the time right after the book of Judges. So it's around 1070 BC. Israel has made it out of Egypt and through the wilderness into Canaan. The last verse in Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so 1 Samuel serves as a transition into Israel having earthly kings. Now there's only one problem with that, and that is that God was supposed to be Israel's king. But Israel struggled with what God's people in every age have always struggled with, which is they looked around at the surrounding nations and they said, why can't we be more like them? And so what God is going to do is he's going to give them exactly what they want. And Israel will have to deal with the consequences of getting what they want. And so what we see is that for the next 500 years, Israel has 43 different earthly kings. And out of those 43 kings, 35 of them were wicked and led the people into sin. Only eight, eight out of 43 were considered to be good. And even amongst the good ones, we see that they had flaws. All of this is making way for God to do what he had planned to do all along, which was to rule his people himself through the ultimate true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so 1 Samuel is this transitional period, and the man that God chooses to lead this transition is Samuel. I think Samuel is one of the most overlooked people in the whole Bible. In fact, when we think about the book of Samuel, we usually don't think about Samuel. Usually we think about people like David, maybe Saul, Jonathan. But, but Samuel was a great man of God. You know, in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, there's a phrase spoken of concerning the Lord Jesus that, that he continued to grow in stature and in favor with uh, God and man. Well, before that phrase was used of the Lord Jesus in the Gospels, it was used in 1 Samuel 2, 26, referring to Samuel. In chapter 3, verse 20, it says that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. In chapter 7, verse 15, Samuel is called a judge. In chapter 7, we also see him interceding on behalf of the people and uh, offering a sacrifice to God for them, serving a, a priestly function. And so it shouldn't surprise us then when we turn to Hebrews 11, we see Samuel right there in the hall of faith listed with the great saints of the past. Samuel was a godly man. But as usually is the case, whenever you see a godly man, usually there's a godly woman somewhere close by. A wife, a mother, an aunt, a grandmother, a sister. There's a godly woman somewhere. And in Samuel's case, that godly woman is Hannah. Hannah is an Old Testament hero. Ladies, 
Where are you looking to for your heroes? Are you looking to the culture, television, or the scriptures? From our text, I want us to observe three things. One, a grievous relationship. A grievous relationship. Second, a godly response. And third, a gracious reply. A grievous relationship, a godly response, and a gracious reply. First, a grievous relationship. I mean, it's easy to see from the text that Hannah is in a very difficult situation. First of all, she's one of the wives in a polygamous marriage. Had to say this up top, like polygamy is not God's design, right? The original design of God is for marriage is one man and one woman in a lifelong commitment. We see that in Genesis 2. Jesus affirms it in Matthew 19. Uh, we see it in the epistles with the qualifications of an elder, the husband of one wife. And whenever we see polygamy in scripture, it's, it's always accompanied by destructive consequences. And here Hannah is in the middle of this situation. Second, she was barren. She was unable to have children. And a woman in that society, unable to have children, was looked at as cursed. Now we see Hannah's name listed first in verse 2, which probably means that she was his first wife. And so at some point, Elkanah takes in a second wife. We don't know if maybe it was because uh, Hannah was barren. We're not, the text doesn't say. But either way, Hannah had to welcome this second wife into her home. And this wasn't a society where a woman could just go out and just get a job and just do her own thing. No, she was financially and socially dependent on her husband. And so she had to endure it. Hannah was trapped. Can you imagine the lonely nights that Hannah spent knowing that her husband was with another woman. Imagine Hannah's reaction after some time when the other wife gets pregnant. I'm sure the family was celebrating the fact that an heir was, was coming. How hard would that have been for Hannah to rejoice with those who were rejoicing. Nine months go by. Penina, she's showing, and then she's full and makes it to full term and then eventually has the baby. When there's a new baby in the house, the baby gets all the attention. Imagine Hannah having to deal with that. I remember when Blair and I had Sage. It's like people just stopped, people just stopped speaking to me altogether. Like when we walk into a room, it's like I didn't even exist. And we, all the attention goes straight to the baby. Imagine Hannah having to deal with the baby crying at night. What would it have been like for Hannah to go out in public? Were there looks of pity? Were there whispers? Were people chuckling 
under their breath. But then the situation just gets worse because at some point, Penina gets pregnant again and again. You notice verse 2? Verse 2 says she had children, plural. Verse 4 makes a reference to all of her sons and daughters. And then on top of that, Penina is mistreating Hannah. Verse 6 says that she used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. The situation is bad enough. She has, Hannah has someone mocking her because she's not able to have kids. Notice when the mockery is happening in verse 7. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord. A sober reminder that oftentimes the enemy reserves his fiercest attacks for when we're trying to worship the Lord. Can you imagine what kinds of temptations that Hannah was facing? Jealousy? Self-pity? Anger at God? Not only is this a horrible situation, but it's happening over a long period of time. This is, this is long-term pain. This is chronic pain. You know, it's a, it's a few sentences in our Bibles, but this is years in Hannah's life. Anybody ever been or maybe you're in a bad situation that's just been going on and on and on for just a long time and it seems like it's never coming to an end? That's what Hannah was going through. It's a bad situation. And so it should be obvious to us why it says in verse 7 that Hannah wept and wouldn't eat. Obvious. Well, obvious to everyone except one person, and that is her husband in verse 8. You see Elkanah in verse 8? He says to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Really? Why do you weep? Quick note to the brothers. (laughs) Brothers, we can say some unhelpful things at times. Sometimes it's best to just listen and keep our mouth shut. Amen. Amen. And here's what's crazy about this. Hannah is a godly woman. She's one of the godliest people in all the scripture, and yet this is the life that she's living. We shouldn't assume that because a person is in a difficult situation that that means that they're ungodly. It reminds me of uh, John chapter 9. Remember John 9 when when the disciples see a man born uh, blind, blind from birth, and they ask, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that, that he was born this way? And how, does, how did Jesus answer? He said, he said, neither. It wasn't either. This man was born this way so that the work of God could be seen in his life. You know, when you're tempted uh, or when you go through a difficult trial, you can be tempted to doubt whether or not God is with you. If you're a Christian, let Hannah's pain encourage you. I like this quote from... Elizabeth Prentice. She says, God never places us in any position in which we cannot grow. We may fancy that he does. We may fear that we are so impeded by fretting 
petty cares that we are gaining nothing. But when we are not sending branches upward, we may be sending roots downward. Perhaps in the time of humiliation, when everything seems a failure, we are making the best kind of progress. That's good. And so how are you this morning dealing with the pains and the trials in your life? Even the long-term pains and trials. Well, let's look at Hannah and how she dealt with it in our second point, a godly response. A godly response. I want us to notice uh, four things about Hannah's response. In verse 10, notice that it was a prayerful response. It says, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. It was a prayerful response. It doesn't say that she was deeply distressed and got on the phone and called her mom to complain about her husband. It doesn't say she was deeply distressed and gossiped to her girlfriends about Penina. It doesn't say she was deeply distressed and sent out some angry tweets or wrote a blog. It doesn't say she was deeply distressed and then used her words to tear down her husband. No. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord. She took her pain to the only one who could actually do something about it, the Lord. This is why 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's why Psalm 62, verse 8 says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And this is exactly what Hannah's been doing in verse 15. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. When's the last time you poured out your soul before the Lord? And do you, didn't know, do you notice the passion of her prayer? She wept bitterly. There's nothing dignified about this prayer. It's raw. This is one of the great privileges that we have as believers. We can take all of our cares, all of our concerns to God and know that he hears us. And we know this because he's our father. How is he our father? Because we've been adopted into his family. Our ability to cry out to God in this familiar kind of way was purchased for us at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We shouldn't assume that every person, period, has this privilege to be able to, be able to cry out to God and have their prayers heard. You know, it's the reason why we pray in Jesus' name, right? When, when we pray in Jesus' name, it's not just a, a phrase that we add at the end of our prayers, but it's acknowledging the reality that we, in and of ourselves, do not deserve to have any prayers answered ever. And so we come to God in the name of another, 
based on the authority of another, Jesus. And so what Jesus did is he comes to this world. He lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross as a substitute in our place for our sins. He raises from the grave on the third day with all power in his hands. And then we who trust in Christ, who turn from our sins and trust in him, along with being saved from the penalty of our sins, we also have this privilege of approaching God, coming near to God, and having God answer our prayers in Jesus' name. Praise God for that privilege, and let us take full advantage of it. Notice also that Hannah's response was not only prayerful, but it was a humble response. It was a humble response. Do you see it in verse 11? It says, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and forget not your servant, but will give your servant, a son. You see how she's relating to God? She sees God as the Lord of hosts, the God of the heavenly armies, the sovereign, majestic, transcendent God. And then in light of this big view of who God is, she sees herself as his servant. And that's always what should happen. When we see God for who he is, we see ourselves for who we are. She sees herself as a servant of the Lord. And humility before God leads to humility before man. So do you notice her humble response to Eli? Eli sees her pouring out her soul to God. And what does he do? He misinterprets it. Right? Verse 14 to 16, Eli says to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, I'm sure Hannah may have felt justified in answering him all kinds of ways. Right? Especially in light of the pain that she's going through. She's weeping bitterly, and now he's accusing her of being drunk. She may have been tempted to just, just come out and just start shaking her head. What you talking about? Drunk. What? But that's not what she does. Do you see her response? No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. She corrects him. I, I haven't drunk wine nor, nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So she corrects his misinterpretation, but do you notice how humble it is? How gently she does it? Humility. Notice also that it's a submissive response. At the end of verse 11, she makes this promise to God that if, that if God gives her a son, she says, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. In making this promise to God, she is uh, uh, repeating the, the Nazarite vow of Numbers chapter 6. Uh, this was for parents who 
dedicated their children to the service of the Lord. And so what this means is that, is that she would have to give her child away and only see him when she traveled to the temple once a year or so. Can you imagine how hard that would have been for a mother to just give up her child? Especially after praying all this time? What is she doing? She's recognizing that her son does not belong to her first and foremost, but he belongs to the Lord. And that's the case with everything in our lives. The earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. And so she's submitting herself to God's will. Question, the thing that you're praying for, the thing that you've been praying for for a long time for God to do in your life, are you, are you willing to submit it to God, to, to hand it over to him? James 4 says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. You know, some stuff God's just not going to give us because, just because of how we'll treat it when we get it. Why would God give us something that we would be unwilling to give up for him? That would be God answering our prayer by giving us an idol. Why would he do that? And so let us learn from Hannah about submission to God's will in prayer. Do you notice also uh, that her response is a response of faith? It's a faith-filled response. Look at verse 17. Uh, We see that Eli gives her uh, his blessing. Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Verse 18, she says, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Did you catch that in verse 18? Her face was no longer sad. Now, her circumstances at that point had not changed. She she still wasn't pregnant, still didn't have a baby, still in this difficult situation, and yet... Her countenance is completely different now. That is a response of faith. What what faith does is, is it brings joy from the future into the present, where you're able to experience future joy because you're trusting in in what God is going to do even if he hasn't done it yet. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hannah had a conviction of things that she hadn't seen yet to the point where her whole countenance was now changed, even though the circumstances had not changed. And then we see in verse 19, uh, uh, we continue to see this faith-filled response. It says, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Hannah did not allow the fact that her prayer had not yet come to fruition to keep her from worshiping God. She she, she didn't uh, try to bargain with God in a sense of saying, God, okay, you're not going to give that to me, then I'm not going to give myself to your worship. No, she continues 
to worship God. Do not let unanswered prayer or disappointment keep you from worshiping the Lord. I want us also, uh, finally, to consider the gracious reply. A gracious reply. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So God graciously answers her prayer. Do you see the grace in it? I think the grace is found in three words. God remembered her. God remembered her. God was not obligated to answer this prayer, but he remembered her. I can't hear that phrase, he remembered her, without thinking about the thief on the cross, his last request to God, to Jesus. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Praise God that we serve the God who remembers. That is, he is mindful of us. For the years and years that that dark trial was going on, it would have been very easy for Hannah to think that God had just just completely forgotten about her. He was just too busy doing other stuff. But no, he remembered. You know, your, your friends may forget you or overlook you, but God remembers you. If you are trusting in Christ, God remembers you. Your coworkers, your boss may overlook you. But if you are trusting in Christ, God remembers you. He is mindful and he loves to answer the prayers of his people. But he loves to do it in his timing. Do you see that phrase in verse 20? It says, in due time, Hannah conceived. That is not necessarily according to Hannah's timeline, but according to God's perfect timeline. So some things God is saying, no, I'm not going to give that to you just because of how you're going to use it. You're going to make it an idol, so I'm just going to keep that from you. Some things God will say no just because it's bad for you. You have no idea how, how me answering this prayer would destroy you. Other things God says yes, and he'll give it right away in his grace. And yet other things God says the answer is yes, but just not now. But the time is going to come in due time when he answers that prayer according to his grace. His timing is perfect. So let this encourage us to seek God's face. God is good. He's good in what he gives, and he's good in what he withholds. He is good. And, and I love Hannah's uh, commitment to keeping her word. 
It says that she did what she said she was going to do, right? It's, you know, it's one thing to say you're going to do something. Oh, God, in the middle of a, of a dark trial, God, if you, if you answer this prayer, then I'll. But it can be so easy once you actually receive it to remember the thing that you said that you would do. And this has to be hard for a mother to give up her child now. But Hannah does it. And I think, you know, it's no question that it was difficult, but it wasn't impossible because she had already resolved to give him to God. And I love the, just the remembrance of the answered prayer. How often does God answer prayers? And then we just, we're, we're on to the next trial. And we've completely forgotten, you know, it's, it's like, the, uh, like the lepers that were, that were cleansed. Didn't even go back to give thanks, right? Um, so let us, uh, let us be quick to run back to God and, and give him praise and give him thanks for the prayers that he answers in our lives. And so as I close, I just want to close with a, uh, with a couple of uh, closing observations. Uh, three closing observations. Observation number one, God was sovereign over this whole situation. God was sovereign over this whole situation. Do you see what it says in verse 5 and verse 6? It says, the Lord closed her womb, right? It doesn't say the devil closed her womb or sin closed her womb. It, it was God. God was the architect at work in orchestrating this whole scenario. And what God was doing was way bigger than Hannah could have even imagined. Hannah had no idea on those dark, sleep, dark sleepless nights when she's crying out to God, little did she know that her pain would be used to encourage people in a land far, far away, thousands of years away, we're looking back at her life and gaining encouragement from it. She had no idea. Hannah didn't realize that through, through her prayers is how we get Samuel, and Samuel is the one who chooses David, and from David we get to Jesus. So Hannah's playing this, this role in redemptive history that God has something way bigger in mind than just giving this woman a child. God is sovereign over the whole situation. And yet, do you see that his sovereignty doesn't exclude her from praying, right? So it's not God is sovereign, so Hannah don't, don't need to do nothing. No, no. God uses her prayers. He uses her, her bitter weeping and crying out to God to actually bring about the answer that he has in mind. So, 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 so as we consider the sovereignty of God, let that compel us towards prayer, towards seeking his face, because his prayers are the way that he has determined to do the things that he wants to do. God is sovereign. Second observation comes from verse 25. A bull was slaughtered. You see that in verse 25? Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. Now this section of the text is uh, filled with, 
with celebration. The, the prayer has been answered. They're going to worship the Lord. And then what is this? In the middle of this happy text, we hear about slaughtering, right? Just like uh, Pastor Garrett was talking about earlier, the blood, right? Slaughtering is bloody. This bull being slaughtered is pointing ahead, pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ who had to be slaughtered in order for us to receive salvation and in order for us to receive answers to prayer. And so let's, let's never forget this, um, that, that, that whenever we're dealing with God, we need a mediator, and it's, it's in the realm of sacrifice, right? Let, let us not think the, like, let, let us not leave the atonement too far away from our minds. Because every good thing that God does in our life, it's all centered in this great event, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus when he was slaughtered in our place, when he was condemned for us. Last observation is that Jesus is a better priest than Eli. Jesus is a better priest than Eli. You see in verse 17, Eli says, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. That's pretty much all Eli could do, was tell her, May the Lord answer your prayer. Eli didn't have the power to actually get it done. Jesus is a greater priest than Eli because Jesus not only um, died in our place, but then he's also interceding for us. He's at the right hand of the Father. And anything that's according to the will of God, Jesus actually has the power to bring it about in our lives. Jesus is better than Eli. Eli misunderstood Hannah. Jesus will never misunderstand his people. He says, I'm the good shepherd in John 10, 14. I know my own, and my own know me. Jesus is better than Eli. All the promises of God find their yes and their amen in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. And so, I uh, just have one uh, final word of exhortation. Um, and we, we heard it earlier. It bears repeating in light of this. From Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you, Father, that, uh, that all that w was written in former days was written down for our encouragement. Um, 
for our instruction that we might have encouragement from the scriptures. Uh, We thank you, Father, for uh, this praying mother. And pray, Father, that um, in light of what Christ has done for us, uh, that we would be encouraged to endure trials, to respond to you prayerfully, and to love you with everything that we have, to trust you, God. We need you for this, so would you please work this grace in us for the glory of your great name we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I want to uh, encourage us to uh, respond to God in song. Uh, The final song that we will sing is on uh, page 7 of your bulletin. Uh, It's called uh, By Faith. Let's stand and sing.